Chelsea Fairless. And welcome back to another episode of the Every Outfit Podcast. Enough chit chat. Let's just get into the Met Gala theme. Let's get down to brass tacks. They announced the Met Gala theme. And it is hooey. It's a theme. The theme is Sleeping Beauty's reawakening fashion. And when I first saw this, I made the natural assumption like, oh, it's some fairy tale shit. For which I am here for. Finally, a non-vague slash designer theme we're in. But alas. No, it is not about fairy tales. It is basically going to showcase pieces from the Met's permanent collection that are so old and decrepit and deteriorating that they can't be worn. Some of them can't even be displayed standing up. So they will be displayed in coffin-like display cases, which... They also did a couple of those for the um, Catholic Imagination Show, remember? Right, right. But coffins made sense for the Catholic Imagination Show. There's something about older fashion in a coffin that's a little weird to see. So apparently these Sleeping Beauties will either be accompanied by more contemporary pieces that have some common theme or by some sort of visual that shows the garment as it would look if it was worn or if it was in motion or if it was anywhere but the archives at the Met. That makes sense. But when I was reading the description of the show, they want to evoke basically all of our other senses. They're going to evoke how they feel, move, sound, and smell. I don't need to know how these musty-ass dresses smell. So they're going to use AI and CGI, of course to bring these outfits to life. I've already seen commentary that this feels like it's a dig at Kim Kardashian because the idea that these outfits are so... I'm calling them outfits, which feels incorrect. Uh, that these costume pieces... Clothes. They're called clothes. <laughs> I don't know, but there's something about an archival piece from the 17th century. It feels so silly to call it an outfit or clothing. It's more than that, Chelsea. Anyway, this all feels like a dig at Kim Kardashian, right? Because she wore the Marilyn Monroe dress there's no way she didn't damage it and seeing that this show is all centered around clothing that you literally cannot be worn it cannot even be displayed on a mannequin people are saying is a direct dig at her I don't think Andrew Bolton when he was coming up with this concept was like how do I tell Kim Kardashian I didn't like the Marilyn Monroe dress yeah if anyone thinks that Andrew Bolton gives two shits about that they're delusional but you know what I'm sure this is going to be beautiful yeah I think I think we're in for another year where it's going to be a great exhibition and a very confused red carpet. The way to interpret this theme would either be to wear something historical, I don't know, from like the 1920s and before, because I feel like clothing after that point is still relatively intact. Right. Or it's about wearing something that's a little bit deconstructed in that Margiela way where a piece of clothing is engineered to look like it's been worn or is deteriorating. Well, see, now that sounds cool. So no one is going to do that except maybe Rihanna. Or a third option of how to dress for the red carpet is don't interpret the theme because that's not what used to be done. Just dress really well. I bet Jared Leto is going to show up as a giant moth. The moths that have eaten some of the clothes in this exhibit. Because apparently some of the clothes are like tattered and falling apart. One aspect of this is like, this is the last time that y'all are going to be able to see this shit before it literally turns to dust. Another notable thing is who is sponsoring this Met Gala it is Lueve, which I think is the first time Lueve has sponsored the Met Gala, but also TikTok. So have fun with Addison Ray doing TikTok dances in Victorian clothing on the steps. So when is this actually happening? Oh, right. The first Monday in May. <laughs> Sorry, I just answered my own question. Uh, May 6th to be exact. And then the show will run from May 10th to September 2nd, 2024. So in other fashion news, the CFDA Awards happened this week. They should really announce 
announce the theme at that event. Ooh, yeah, you are right. They need to announce the theme like on stage and not like via a Vogue.com article, which is what happens every single year. Or like Andrew Bolton and Anna Wintour should go to Wall Street or something and like ring the bell as they <laughs> announce the theme. Yeah, ring the bell and announce the theme. I love that. We're saying there needs to be a little more uh, pomp and circumstance. I want like an elaborate gender reveal party, but for the Met, Met Gala. Gala. Yes. But anyway, so CFDA Awards happened. Our girl Sarah Jessica Parker was supposed to host, but she pulled out at the absolute last minute and was replaced with Anne Hathaway. So sending prayers to our girl. Hopefully she just has like a mild case of COVID or something. We're sending our well wishes to Sarah Jessica Parker. I was just impressed that Anne Hathaway not only was ready to host, but had a Ralph Lauren dress ready to go. She comes prepared. Who else did you think looked good? Law Roach. Okay. Law Roach's outfit was my favorite. I think that the CFDA red carpet this year was really, really sedate. And I think it's because of everything that's happening in the Middle East, like especially like a Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't think a lot of people necessarily wanted to call that much attention to themselves. But Law Roach did not not do that. Law Roach looked like a very kinky Banana Republic model or something. Yeah, I'm looking at at what this is. He seems to have lower pants connected to (laughs) a khaki trench. It's Luar. It's great. And then I also liked Winnie Harlow and Marc Jacobs. I liked Kim Kardashian and Chrome Hearts. I love that she, you know, reps the LA fashion industry when she gets the chance. Oh, I liked Amelia Gray Hamlin. This is the new era of Aliyah, which is just sheer and tits out and I'm not brave enough for that and I'm glad Amelia Gray Hamlin is well of course she is have you seen the tits like Jesus (laughs) tell me who won I did not pay attention to the CFDAs okay so the noteworthy awards are Catherine Holstein from Kate won the women's wear designer of the year for the second consecutive year Mary Kate and Ashley won for accessory design but they didn't even show up so that's a bit of a bummer do you think they heard Sarah Jessica Parker wasn't hosting they were like fuck it fuck this shit Willie Chavarri won for menswear designer of the year looking at this category he was definitely a shoe-in but this win is very well deserved certainly so maria cornejo won the jeffrey bean lifetime achievement award which i think is really cool because this is a woman who has been like quietly dressing new york women in drapey black fluid clothes for a quarter of a century and i think she deserves praise for that i'm in awe of anyone that can sustain an independent fashion brand in new york certainly gwyneth paltrow won the innovator award sure you know you make a thousand dollar vibrator and suddenly you're getting cfda awards it's weird because she's more of an innovator in terms of like creating the wellness category. I don't know if she's that innovative when it comes to fashion design. Like is G label that innovative? Like wearing G label at your ski trial is innovative marketing. Right. Jonathan Anderson won the International Designer of the Year. That checks out. Well deserved. Also especially makes sense now that we have this Lueve Met Gala announcement. Would have been a perfect time to announce the Met Gala theme but whatever and uh the shop with google emerging designer of the year Jesus Christ! (laughs) sorry i had to say it like as the category actually was yeah that went to rachel scott from diatima which i've never heard of this brand but it looks cool there's some very cool crochet pieces doily dresses things of that nature as you're saying the full name of this award it just makes me realize how much i want the vh1 fashion awards to come back so it can be the shop with google goal VH1 Vogue Fashion Awards. Yeah, let's just make it longer. All right, shall we get into some hot topics? Sure. This week's hot topics are really skewed to what we find interesting. And the first one up is that Barbara Streisand has a new book. Streisand. (laughs) Streisand. Yes. She promoted this book on CBS Sunday Morning, interviewed by none other than Gail King. And no interview with Barbara Streisand would be complete without a tour of her Victorian mall that is in the basement of her Malibu house. See? I remember that Barbara went on Oprah 
when her first book, My Passion for Design, came out. This was not a memoir. This is a book about decorating. But as I remember, Oprah did not get the tour of this. No, but do you know who did? Terry Richardson, who <laughs> gave us the photographs in Harper's Bazaar, I believe, of her, what I will call, Victorian mall. Yeah, those are among the best photos taken of her, I have to say. I know that Barbara Streisand releasing a memoir is a big deal for you. I must say that my main understanding of Barbara Streisand is from the early aughts with Kathy Griffin specials where she does a very hilarious retelling of Barbara Streisand on Oprah where the episode ends with Barbara Streisand revealing that she's painted Oprah's mic. Oh yes, I remember that. Yeah, Oprah's like, how did you get this white mic? Barbara's got a color palette. The only thing I really remember about that one appearance was the fact that Oprah surprised her with Robert Redford. Like, not like a cardboard cutout, like literal Robert Redford. And then she sang The Way We Were. But it was lovely to see Gail talk to her. I completely forgot about Barbara's crippling stage fright. Anyway, I've never seen her live. I would fucking love to. Hopefully my day will come. What would you do if she had a Vegas residency? What would you do if she had a residency, but it's only in her own antique mall? (laughs) A Vegas residency would be so good for her because she could just fly back to Malibu on a private jet. She doesn't actually have to live there. Yeah. We will move on from the mall that is underneath her house, but what also resides there is effectively a Barbara Streisand museum because all of her costumes from movies are there. Also, dresses that she bought in literal antique shops are there. But that's not to be confused with her closet. I'm sure she has a whole huge closet with like cold shoulder Donna Karen sweaters upstairs somewhere. The reason that she has essentially rebought her entire childhood is she didn't have much of a childhood. Like she talks about how she never had a doll and she would just fill up a hot water bottle with water and that felt like a doll to her. And now she has this whole ass doll store. People always talk about how crazy her underground mall is, but not enough people talk about the fact that also on this Malibu property, there's a fully separate house that she created based on a fictional story of a fake family that once lived there back in the day. And this house is complete with a water wheel and a man-made lake swings with the children's names on it and shit. Like, it's actually fully crazy. If you want to see this, because I went down a YouTube K-hole after watching this interview, there is an interview with her husband, James Brolin, that he does in front of that house. But yeah, if you can't get through Barbara Streisand's 900-plus page memoir, I would suggest My Passion for Design. Much shorter, much more visual. What I learned from CBS uh, Sunday Morning, she loves the truth. And I want the truth about her relationship with John Peters, who is a very eccentric person in Hollywood. If you saw Licorice Pizza, he's who Bradley Cooper plays. He started as Barbara Streisand's hairstylist, became her boyfriend, and then became a film producer. And do you know what I also know about John Peters? He too has a bit of a mall in his living room. What kind of mall does he have? He doesn't have like this antique garage type bullshit that Barbara has. Kevin Smith tells a legendary story about writing a Superman film that never got made and he had to pitch it to John Peters. And when he went to John Peters' house, he saw in the, it was either the foyer or the living room that there were a ton of sweaters. It looked like a Brooks Brothers, he said, but they were all in John Peters' size. I hope she talks about that. So moving on to some more baby boomer news. I was completely traumatized when you put the link to this new Beatles music video in the doc because I had not seen it and I wish I could unsee it. I had heard people shitting on this music video. So I clicked on the link and I scrubbed through the video and I saw a young John Lennon playing guitar and then the camera pans to the Ringo star of today. And I was like, well, this isn't so bad. And then I watched the chorus and holy shit. If you haven't seen this music video, it features Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr in 2023 with young AI avatars of George Harrison and John Lennon. Young John Lennon in this chorus is like maniacally pointing his finger at 2023 Paul McCartney like a glitching NPC from a video game. It's so upsetting. I don't need to see 
Beatles anthology era George Harrison kikiing with Sergeant Pepper era George Harrison. I know there's something so odd and morbid to put an uncanny valley young Paul McCartney next yes. to the man himself who is still living. Because it just reminds us that he's aged in such a lesbian way. <laughs> It's like he should be a star of Nyad or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's giving like P-Town woman with like seven rescue dogs or something. Well, a big sticking point in this SAG after strike is putting restrictions on AI. The Actors Union wants to put restrictions on this because left unchecked, we're gonna get more shit like this. If you could see the Beatles play together again, wouldn't you? But not like this. We should say that the music video is directed by Peter Jackson, who did... What? Yes! That's shocking because it's so bad. And while I'm not a big Lord of the Rings person, I am a big Heavenly Creatures person. So this is shocking to me. <laughs> Again, in theory, this seems like a great idea, right? But I was like, what would this be like? Like, how do I properly explain to our fuckettes who maybe have not watched this what this is like? It's like if you put a younger AI version of Johnny Cash and sat him next to old Johnny Cash and they started singing Hurt together. It's like, no. <laughs> but you're failing to mention an aspect of this, which is the biggest problem, which is how shitty the CGI is. And also the song isn't very good. So it's like one not great thing layered on top of each other with the horrible CGI being the worst of it. I wasn't wowed by the song. It's, it's no. no Dear Prudence. No, it's kind of like when Nirvana released that quote unquote new song 20 years ago and you're just sort of like, yeah, I see why this wasn't on the record. I can't believe that Peter Jackson directed that. I'm still not over it because I would think that the creative was done by AI. Yeah, ChatGPT came up with this. The yeah. other thing that I can't figure out is clearly Yoko okayed this, but I would love to know Sean Lennon's opinion on this music video because he's someone with taste. Like there's no way that he's like, well, this is great. See, I feel like this music video should have been one or two things. Like it should have been animated. Like let's go back to that yellow submarine animation and just deal with it that way. Or we cast young people as the Beatles and just have them lip sync. Did you look at the comments for the music video on YouTube? Because no. it's all like, this brought a tear to my eye. There they are back together again. I'm like, I guess maybe I'm in the minority. It's wild. As mentioned before, I was once an assistant for a celebrity. So of course I am obsessed with this Robert De Niro lawsuit involving his former assistant, Graham Chase Robinson. Chell, it's actually a dual lawsuit because he sued her first in 2019, and you probably remember that he accused her of watching 55 episodes of Friends at work over a four-day span. <laughs> I mean, that's goals, but also like clinical depression. As well as embezzling from the company by spending almost $9,000 at Dean and DeLuca, as well as Whole Foods, as well as $32,000 in Ubers over a two-year period. She then countersued him for gender discrimination, saying De Niro only sued her first as an intimidation tactic. She alleged that in her time working for De Niro in his production, Canal Productions, he often made inappropriate comments like asking her to imagine him sitting on the toilet in order to properly place his bathroom television and gave her, quote, stereotypically female job duties that were, quote, inconsistent with her job title. Is the toilet thing really that fucked up? He does have a point. I mean, how else are you going to know where his tub TV should go? I will be watching this when I'm sitting on the toilet. Just imagine roughly where my head might be. Just imagine me sitting in this chair. What's about chair height? See, I'm on his side. A lot has been made about her having to do these things, but we're not talking enough about the beef between De Niro's current girlfriend Tiffany Chen and Chase Robinson because that seems to be where the beef kind of begins that when she became De Niro's girlfriend of which Chelsea do you know they just recently had a child together not to be confused with Al Pacino who just had to pay $30,000 a month to his 29 year old girlfriend who just had his baby it seems that when Tiffany Chen started dating De Niro Chase Robinson became her assistant as well which again I have a little bit of empathy for her as someone who was ostensibly I was brought in to run this actress's production company and then it devolved into me being her personal assistant I see how this could have happened they countersued each other they couldn't settle it's now gone to trial 
And it's gotten even crazier where De Niro had to be silenced in court because he yelled at Robinson during court. Also, he seems to be very upset that she spent all of his Delta Sky miles that he was going to give to all of his children. Well, yeah, because didn't she steal like five million (laughs) Sky miles? Well, he did deny a lot of her allegations. He did admit that, sure, he probably asked Robinson to scratch his back once or twice. I mean... My other favorite insane anecdote from this trial is that he once asked her to Uber him a martini from Nobu at 11 p.m. That's what I would assume I would be doing (laughs) when I interviewed for the job. Right. Like, so you'll need me to Uber over your martini? Yep, got it. We'll see how this ends up. So I want to bring public attention to the fact that Francis Bean Cobain married Riley Hawk, who is Tony Hawk's son. And I was just so shocked by this because as a huge Courtney Love fan, like I didn't even know they were dating. I must say, I knew that they were dating. Happy to see they're married because she's someone that needs the insulation of being married to a fellow famous person because I don't know if you remember Frances Bean has been married before I don't know if you remember what happened with the ex-husband where she had to give him one of Kurt's guitars just to get rid of him and he fucking sold it at auction for six million dollars that's so crazy I also love the detail that Michael Stipe officiated this ceremony her godfather Drew Barrymore was unavailable her godmother she was scabbing so the timing just didn't work out well I am happy for Frances Bean because look I don't know anything about her I don't know anything about this relationship but I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that Tony Hawk's son not gonna sell one of Kurt Cobain's guitars watch her sell like all of his dad's skateboards (laughs) all of Tony Hawk's X Games skateboards Skateboards, yeah. <laughs> Did you see the Tony Hawk dressed up as Larry David for Halloween? No. I was so good. He was doing skateboarding tricks dressed as Larry David. That's really cute. Shall we get into some movies we've watched lately? Yes. Shall we start with the movie <laughs> we saw together on Friday night? <laughs> no, I don't want to talk about that. Yes, of course. Let's talk about Priscilla. We didn't really talk about it after we saw it. Well, we can't. We save it for you guys. So what are your thoughts? You know, we've discussed our love of Sofia Coppola in a recent VIP episode, and we both noted that while we love her and her movies, they're not really rewatchables for us. This one is for me, and I want to see it again. And this might be my favorite Sofia Coppola film. Wait, really? Yeah. I loved it too. I'm just surprised. And to clarify, I don't think that her films aren't rewatchable. It's just that I haven't watched a lot of them in a long time. Like, I haven't seen The Virgin Suicides in years. I would definitely rewatch it, and I will. I liked Priscilla a lot also. I think this movie is Sofia Coppola's John Dealman. Which is not to say that it's her masterpiece. I say that because Priscilla Presley's day-to-day life is extremely boring. So it's a lot like John Dealman, like minus the domestic labor. Like instead of peeling potatoes, she's like sitting around reading tabloids about Elvis cheating on her. All of the motifs that Sofia Coppola loves to put into her films, from The Virgin Suicides to Marie Antoinette to even The Beguiled, is synthesized into this movie. Like she loves a fragile woman, a privileged contemplation her own independence. And also, it feels like a lot of her protagonists have some sort of proximity to fame, but aren't necessarily famous themselves or famous for their own work. Like Elle Fanning's character in Somewhere, or I mean, Marie Antoinette was just famous because she fell into it. And Priscilla is the same way. Yeah. Can we talk about the actress that plays Priscilla, Kaylee Spaney? Yeah. Without prosthetics, without really heavy makeup work, At the beginning of the film, legit looks 14, looks like a child, and by the end looks like a grown-ass woman. Yeah, that was crazy. Because she's actually, what, like 24, 25 something? Yeah. A lot of people are talking about Jacob Elordi, and they should. And we'll get into the uh, Elvis v. Priscilla debate in a second. But I don't think she's getting enough recognition. She's fabulous in the film. Yeah, no, I agree. Jacob Elordi did an incredible job with the voice. Which he fully admits that he is just naturally in Elvis's register. I don't think he's better than Austin Butler, though, in Jen. Okay, I mean, I do feel that this film gave, to me, what felt like a more realistic portrayal of probably what Elvis was like, which was probably a terrible hang. Elvis was like, as it turns out, very Kanye. Like, he's just into, like not fucking Priscilla, but then like giving her makeovers and stuff. Yes, I would love to discuss this because any way you slice it, 
Elvis is weird. Like, his conceptions of sex, very odd. You want to fuck an underage girl? Okay. But he didn't... <laughs> I mean, not okay. <laughs> Just to clarify, not okay, but continue. But at least it's like, when he moves her in, you're like, all right, I see where he's going with this. But no, he doesn't want to fuck her. He, they don't fuck seemingly until their wedding night, which I was shocked that he didn't propose when she turned 18. They got married when she was 22. That's so weird. She gets pregnant almost instantly, and then he basically doesn't want to fuck her ever again after that. I think what you're saying is it would make more sense if he wanted to have sex with her. It's weirder to just have a 14-year-old platonic friend sleep in bed with you. Yeah. But Elvis has got mommy issues. It's fine. I also thought that the limitation of the Elvis estate not allowing her to use any of Elvis's songs, which... Given his portrayal, I wonder why. But I thought that that was an asset. I didn't even miss it. I didn't even realize that there was no Elvis until I read like a review of the film. What do you think was better? I think I know your answer. Baz Luhrmann's Elvis or Priscilla? Priscilla was definitely better. But the ending of Elvis was much better than the ending of Priscilla. And I don't want to spoil the ending of Priscilla because a lot of people haven't seen it. But I did find it to be very abrupt and not particularly satisfying. Whereas the end of Elvis was what I can only describe as epic and unforgettable. Elvis, the film, on a whole, is just okay. But that ending scene where it's Austin Butler in the fat makeup singing Unchained Melody and then it cross-dissolves seamlessly into Elvis singing the same song, you leave the theater thinking that's the best fucking movie you've ever seen in your life. But... Austin Butler's performance is fantastic, but I don't know. I just think cramming that much of Elvis's life into one film was insane to begin with. I feel like they should have limited the scope of the story. It was too much. It was too much CGI. Tom Hanks was psychotic. Like there was a lot of like not great stuff about that, but I think Austin Butler was really great. I will say my one criticism of Priscilla is it's a two hour film the first hour is basically her life from 14 to 18. I think they spend so much time on that because it is stunning when you're in the audience and it's an hour into the film and she just graduates high school and Elvis and all of his buddies are there and you're like, oh God. I know, I had no idea that she was still going to high school when she was like living with Elvis at Graceland. Elvis changing her, we see. He wants her to dye her hair, dress a different way. And you know what? He wasn't incorrect. She's just shown many years later with different hair. We don't really see her finding herself. Yeah, I agree. That's, again, that speaks to, I think, the abruptness of how it ended. Yeah. You just kind of got the sense that she had resigned to living this very, like, cloistered, isolated life. Yeah, I would say one of the best scenes, which brings in Elvis's true history, Sofia Coppola aesthetics in this movie is the scene where Priscilla is laying out all of her outfits and then laying the corresponding guns that match her dresses that Elvis <laughs> has gotten her. So good. This one tweet by Katie Delaney, I think really encompasses the film. Love Priscilla. Sofia Coppola is the only woman who could make Elvis feel like a narcissistic indie musician terror from Silver Lake who thinks he's the first guy who ever read a book. True. Basically, the thing about Priscilla is that she didn't really get to leave Graceland. Like, he went off on tour. He went off to shoot movies or whatever like she never got to tag along for any of that stuff like she was literally trapped in this house alone for most of this movie she can't even go into the front yard because fans are just waiting for elvis she can't even play with her dog also what happened to that dog the dog died chelsea that's how much time went on we needed a scene of the dog dying from old age just so i got a sense of the true time frame yeah she never left the country because the one thing that i learned from the baz Luhrmann elvis film is that he never toured Outside of the United States, because the colonel wouldn't let him, probably because the colonel wouldn't be let back into the United States. Right. I'm so glad that I saw Elvis before I saw this, because I legit wouldn't have understood why Elvis was serving in the military if I hadn't just watched that. Yeah, Paul and I were trying to remember. It's like, because when he was in his, like, extra hot, like, wearing eyeliner days, like, early in his career, he did a performance that was televised that was, like, obscene because he was like gyrating and grabbing his crotch and 
I'm probably remembering this incorrectly and I'm sure someone will remind me, but there was some situation where it was like either like you go to jail or you join the military. So he just decided to join the military. To wrap up our conversation about Priscilla versus Elvis, I just want to say in a world where we're mashing up IP, what if just for one scene, Tom Hanks as the colonel showed up? Oh my God. Listen, Sonny, you have to drop the girl. By the way, the colonel, not in this film at all. This speaks to Sofia Coppola's taste level because she would never in a million years, she would rather die or not make this film than have that character even have two lines in Priscilla. He's on the phone, but he's not even heard. Anyway, so go see Priscilla. Okay, so moving on, we have to talk about Jodie Foster's cargo shorts in Nyad. That's all you want to discuss. <laughs> so you previously discussed this film and believe that Jodie Foster was Annette Benning's lover, which... I was half right. You were half right. But anyway, we are, of course, talking about the Diana Nyad biopic Nyad... If you're unfamiliar with her, she is an insane lesbian who swam from Florida to Cuba at the age of 64. And Net Benning plays Diana and Jodie Foster plays the coach slash ex-girlfriend slash platonic life partner, Bonnie. What did you think about this film? I liked it. It's not a movie I would have watched. Had I not forced you to? I know. I really didn't know anything about this true life event. Me neither. And it happened like 10 years ago. I heard nothing about this bitch. Okay. When I was saying this, you were shaking your head and I got nervous because I thought you were going to yell at me, but I'm glad that you are also do not remember this. I did not know. I did listen to her Oprah Super Soul conversation, but I wasn't aware that that had happened so recently. Also, if you're dumb bitches like us then you probably also didn't know that diana nyad had attempted swimming from cuba to key west when she was in her 30s didn't make it and now 30 years later she's she's bearing down the uh i have no idea what expression you're trying to now she's looking at the back half of her life and has decided to attempt it again can you imagine feeling the drive to want to do something like this I really didn't grasp for a majority of the film. I was like, oh, I guess they're cutting between the time she takes breaks and sleeps. No, she swam for 60 hours straight. Spoiler alert, she does swim to Cuba. That is the historical event. But you'll never guess how many times it takes her to do it. (laughs) There was a certain part where I had to just break out and pull up Wikipedia. I was like, how many times did she have to do this? Because I can't take much more of this. I know, but I love how on the last attempt, like you see Annette Benning in the water and she's like practically dead. She's like foaming at the mouth. She's hallucinating she's swimming away from the boat Jodie Foster has to give her this pep talk and she's like you're almost there babe you only have like 12 more hours and it's like (laughs) what this film is a real I'll say like Bill Maher coded film because it's boomer excellence because at one point between one attempt and another some young long distance swimmer decides to do this attempt the same swim and they are tracking her and so delighted when she gets stung by so many jellyfish that she has to not only stop the swim but she's like I'm never gonna attempt this again they're like yes yeah that was really great I will say one of my favorite moments was the unintentionally campy moment where Annette Benning was recovering from her own jellyfish attack in the hospital <laughs> and looked so fucked well yeah she's got like a cut down her face it looks <laughs> it's like, like- it's wild. Annette Bedding was so good. Jodie Foster was so good. They're both so ripped. Also, when I was watching it, I was struck by the fact that, like, we never get movies with multiple women of a certain age unless it is a book club situation or, like, an 80 for Brady type of movie. Like, I can't think of another movie that's come out in recent years that has just been about two women that are over 50. And doing things. Did you notice that there's no B-plot? Right. There's literally, like, this movie is about one thing and one thing only, and it is swimming to Cuba. No, no, no. The B-plot is Annette Benning as Diana Naya not being such a selfish piece of shit. I don't know. Usually with a movie like this, there is at the very least a romantic subplot. Right. There's not that. There's flashbacks to her traumatic childhood. No, 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 Chelsea. The B plot is her swimming and then hallucinating about her previous childhood trauma. 
It is crazy that Annette Benning is not a lesbian. She is like female Stanley Tucci. Well, you know, she's in a long line of lesbian coded straight women like myself, Janine Garofalo. Let us be, Chelsea. <laughs> Although her lesbianism is completely irrelevant in this film. Like, it does not matter. It is an afterthought. Although, the way that this film is set up, it seems like Diana Nyad would rather attempt to swim 110 miles than date as a 60-year-old lesbian. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because those scenes are, are back-to-back of Jodie Foster trying to set her up, and then she's like, you know what? I'm going to attempt that, that long-distance swim I did when I was in my 30s. Also, I found the costuming on Jodie Foster to be so incredible, not because I think anyone should dress like this, but because it was just so legit. It was like the cargo shorts and the wraparound sunglasses and the bad silver jewelry. It was just so specific to a certain kind of person. I was impressed by that. More representation of lesbians wearing jorts. <laughs> jorts and sports bras. But when she took off her shirt, I was like, she is ripped. Like, yeah. what the fuck? And when Annette Bening was doing that plank, I was like, fuck. <laughs> well, Annette Bening trained for like a year. They both did. Which is crazy because Jodie Foster didn't even have to do athletic shit, but her character just happened to be a personal trainer who was ripped. So she had to get ripped. She had to get ripped or it was like, you know what? If Netflix is paying for it, I'll get a personal trainer five times a week. <laughs> Speaking of Netflix, we also watched the film Reptile, which... I assume you put in the outline because we want to discuss Delicia Silverstone and Benicio Del Toro reuniting. <laughs> I would watch this film for that reason alone. Just for an excess baggage reunion, people should watch it. This movie is about the gruesome murder of a real estate agent and her boyfriend is played by Justin Timberlake. Benicio Del Toro is the detective trying to solve the crime. Alicia Silverstone is his wife. In the grand tradition of the film noir, everyone is vaguely sus and corrupt. Yes, you're also forgetting Michael Pitt is in the film with badly dyed black hair. Yeah, it was kind of like his character from Hedvig and the Angry Inch got locked in a basement for the last 20 years and just reemerged for this movie. Once I knew what the plot was, because I did go in blind, I was like, well, I can tell you who's probably the killer. But anyway, what I was delighted by, Benicio Toro was my junior high and high school crush. He's very hot. He remains hot. Well, he's also one of the few leading men that really does feel old Hollywood in a way. He really has a presence. He's very well cast as a cop. Yeah, what I was delighted by knowing that Justin Timberlake was in the film, I had assumed he was the lead and Benicio Del Toro in recent years is usually more of a character actor. Benicio Del Toro is really the lead of the film. He's driving the story engine. Yeah, he definitely is. I also just want to say, casting Justin Timberlake as a realtor is absolutely genius. Like if you've ever met a successful male realtor, they are literally all like that. He is to realtors what Annette Benning is to lesbians. Very true, very true. And there's something about him like Ben Affleck in Gone Girl that just feels a little, we're not sure if we can trust him or not. Yes, especially in light of watching this film post Britney Spears memoir, it, it imbued it with a certain energy that I don't think it would have previously had for sure. What I didn't get enough of, it is funny, right? Priscilla was two hours. This film's like two hours and 15 minutes. And Priscilla is just about one person in time. And of course, it spans decades. But Reptile, it's like you have like six principal cast members. We learn all about their personal lives. But the one thing that I wish there was more of was Alicia Silverstone's Jean Purse side hustle business. <laughs> yeah. But back to Michael Pitt. Okay. <laughs> I'm not done with him. Okay. No shade to Alicia Silverstone's side hustle. It's just so nice to see him in a movie. I know he was in Boardwalk Empire, but that was the last thing for me that kind of registered. Oh, you know why? Because he was such a difficult actor, no one would cast him. They had to kill him off of Boardwalk Empire. He oh, was really? the second lead because he was that fucking difficult. You say that you had the crush on Benicio. I had a bit of a crush on Michael Pitt because he did have that androgynous young Leonardo DiCaprio energy. He was giving like sweet little baby cherub. He's now aged into man. Like all twinks, they, they face twink death. 
The death of their baby cherubness. Well, he's still hot. He's just like his character in this movie has fallen on hard times, let's just say. But he is doing his crunches because he's ripped. <laughs> he's mentally off, but he's not going to neglect Abday. <laughs> also, I should mention that not a lot of reptiles in this movie. Not about literal reptiles. More of a neo-noir about the housing crisis. It's very parent-coded, I would say. But, you know, it, it brings us millennials in with Alicia Silverstone, Michael Pitt. And you know what? I'm here for an Eric Bogosian appearance. <laughs> I'm always delighted when I see him in anything, whether it's Law & Order, Uncut Gems. I'm like, there you are. <laughs> I'm not done talking about Netflix because I also watched the Sly Stallone documentary that was on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And I have some thoughts, Chelsea. I should give some context. I don't know if you watched this, but about a month or two ago, there was a three-part documentary about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes, I did not watch. The first part is bodybuilder, second part actor, third part politician. And he gets into it all. Now, he of course is mythologizing himself, but he talks about cheating, his bad movies he made. He is endlessly entertaining. I knew that there was going to be a competing Sly Stallone documentary, so I was like, great, this one was so good. Not that they're done by the same people, but they're both put out by Netflix. So I was shocked when I went to go play it, and it said an hour and a half. And I was like, oh, it's like the first part an hour and a half? No, it's just an hour and a half. And really what this documentary is, is Sylvester Stallone's life as told through Rocky. It would warrant a documentary, but you can't say that this is about your entire life. And then really only talk about the Rocky films and your daddy issues. He tells the same story about his father and a horse twice in an hour and 30 minute documentary. Do you know what there's none of in this documentary? Nothing about his marriage to Bridget Nielsen. See, that's why I would watch it. That's what I'm saying. He has an amazing art collection, and he is an accomplished painter. None of that. Look, I think you can tell someone's life story in an hour and a half, because we just watched that Mr. Chow documentary, and they worked that shit out. So it's definitely pause. I will say the best thing about the documentary is the narrative spine is he is moving out of his gigantic mansion and so he's telling his life story and it's juxtaposed with them wrapping up all of his memorabilia and you said to me do you know who bought his house and of course i do because i'm a real estate freak adele bought his house and tore most of it down adele spent 50 million dollars for his house to tear most of it down. But do you know what she kept? That's the one Sylvester Stallone news story I know about. She kept the bronze Rocky sculpture. Which is at the head of the pool. I would judge anyone who would get rid of that. I do think the documentary would have been better if it went from Sly Stallone telling his life story and it just pulled out and Adele was there with a tape measure. And it's like he's been talking to her the entire time. She's like, oh, I just want to take some measurements. I don't okay. really care about your dad. Okay, that is xenophobic. What? <laughs> My Adele That accent. All right, so I shouldn't watch it then. You shouldn't watch it, but what you should... God, I've been a real Netflix whore. Selling Sunset this season, I'm only three episodes in. If you've watched Selling Sunset, I was off last season. Last season, bad. Season seven, I'm only three episodes in, incredible. They are somehow hoarier, dumber, and the real estate's better? What more could you want? <laughs> These women have a fight, and I think it's episode two, about the origin of if you build it, they will come. One of them says <laughs> it's from Field of Dreams. The other one says, no, it's from the Bible. And then a third one goes, they made a movie of the Bible? What more could you ask for, Chelsea? That sounds great, actually. In other reality news... Hardashaholics Anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. You're just a witch, and I hate you. <laughs> so Courtney had her baby. Congrats. We didn't talk about this last week, but Travis was on a podcast and seemingly revealed the baby's name. Which, what is it again? Rocky 13 Barker. But they haven't announced that. They haven't announced... He also said that the baby was going to be born on October 31st. No idea if that is true, but they were seen leaving the hospital November 7th. Yeah, can you imagine if she just got a C-section on Halloween? I will have a Halloween baby no matter what. I mean, I was wondering if they were going to go that route. You don't actually want your birthday to be on Halloween, though, because there's so many competing parties. Like, imagine your birthday falls on the one day where, like, 
everyone goes out. It w- the only worst thing would be New Year's Eve or like Christmas when no one goes out. Yeah, having a Halloween birthday is tough because when you're a kid, you're locked into a theme for your birthday party. And yes, all of your friends are doing other things. But yeah, when you become an adult, I think it becomes easier until your friends get kids again and then they're off doing Halloween. It's not a good day to be born on. Around Halloween, great. It only is good if you're one of those people that's obsessed with Halloween. Of which they are. They really are. I did catch up with the Kardashians. Oh my God, great. With the last episode. A lot happened in that episode, I did tell you. Yet in this moment, all I remember is North eating an onion like an apple. The last episode begins in their quote unquote Palm Springs homes which is really La Quinta, what we learn is that Tristan and Chloe, when they were together, or at least in a better place co-parenting, bought side-by-side lots that they don't know what they're going to do with. Chris has her house, and then Courtney has her house there. And I guess Kylie is also building a house out in La Quinta. Can no one bunk together anymore? (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy considering how big Chris's house is. The fact that they feel they need additional houses. To be fair, if they keep having children, I guess they all need to have their, their own homes. This is where Courtney reveals that she gets triggered by Tristan, which I was like, same girl, same. We all do. And then there's that conversation between Kim and Courtney about their children going to their father's homes and preferring it over their own homes, which I've seen this discussed two ways, which is the children of divorce don't see the emotional labor that the primary caregiving parent gives and so therefore the other parent is just better or i've also seen that these are children who grew up in infinite privilege and they don't want all that shit all they want is valuable quality time with their parents right so they might be like into a smaller house or something I think it's a combination of the two. It's a combination of the two. And it's like, yeah, North thinks that it's cool that Kanye lives in an apartment, which I'm like, okay, where? What? What is this? For a girl that has only ever flown private, she doesn't actually want a normal life. Could you imagine after a life of only flying private, having to go to an airport and fly coach? Not going to happen. Yeah, if she had to fly Spirit Airlines, she'd probably have a Menti B. I'm sure she doesn't want all the pomp and circumstance of her lifestyle all the time, but also she doesn't want to be a normie. Yeah, no, definitely not. I think the most interesting part of this episode was the stuff with Chloe and Chris, because Chloe is taking issue with Chris's management of her career. Which people thought that it was a fight between mother-daughter because the previous episode, and in the previous it made it seem like they were fighting about, like, why'd you cheat on dad? I mean, she's had some, as a mother and a manager, some pretty accurate points for Chris. She was throwing in her mother's face why did you cheat on dad as a justification of like, I'm not getting back with Tristan. Like he's a cheater. I don't want to be with someone like that. So Chris innocently is like, what if you had a podcast? Which good idea, not a bad idea. I know. The fact that not one of them has a podcast is crazy because they have so many family members. They could at least have one of them every month booked, like done. And Chloe has such this inbuilt fear because so many people have come after her that she just doesn't want to even put herself in a place to be criticized and she gives an example of like well what if I misgender Caitlyn and you know suddenly everyone's on top of me because they didn't you know I didn't mean anything by it and I'm like girl you're not live streaming you can definitely edit that out guys do you know how many times we re-record our intros you'll you'll never know that's what editors are for it's the beauty of podcast only our editor Sophia knows how problematic we actually are <laughs> But the bigger point that Chloe makes is like, I don't love your management because you're all about signing the deal and getting your 10% and then you abandon me. The other part of that is she's like, you're always working, you're always traveling, you don't have time for me. When I call you about something urgent, I don't hear back from you for like a full day. And the inference of that is you're too busy managing Kendall and Kylie and Kim And also going to Santorini with Corey Gamble. So my career is fucked because I have nothing going on. Because you're not investing the time in managing me. The other big issue that Chloe has is that I don't have a team. Everyone else has a team around them that takes care of them and I have no one. And it's like, you do have 
what's her name that builds Good American? I mean, she's also doing Skims and now Kai, but you do have a team. Yeah. Chloe, we'll be your team. We'll be your podcasting producers. But I get it, though, because Chloe deserves to have a little bit of a career glow up. But she doesn't want to do it. I mean, there's multiple things happening. She's like, I don't want a podcast. And Chris is correct. It's like, if anyone should have a podcast, it's you. Like, come to the offices down the street or we'll set up a studio in your house. You don't have to go anywhere. What I find interesting about the fact that she doesn't want to do a podcast is, is it that much different from the reality show that you do? Well, we don't know what kind of podcast she would have. But she's so afraid of saying the wrong thing. That's that's the first thing where she's like, well, I don't want to do it because what if I say the wrong thing? And it's like, you're involved in the edits. You're more liable to fuck up when you're being filmed 12, 14 hours a day for your reality show than in an hour of podcasting. Then she's like, you don't manage me correctly. And then she's like, well, we'll get a team behind you. And she's like, but I don't have a team and no one will ever be my team. Maybe she just wants like a Dolce & Gabbana eyewear campaign or something. There's got to be something specific that she actually does want that she feels like Chris is cock blocking her over. I don't like when Chloe and Chris fight. They live next door to each other. Yeah, but it's very good television. I don't know if it was this last episode or the previous episode, but I do want to discuss the Kendall's continuous soft launching of possibly a home flipping career. Was it this past episode where she shows up to Scott's, uh, the house that Scott's flipping, and she's like, I'm still thinking about if I want to do this. And let me just say, as someone that's currently renovating a house, you travel too much to flip homes. That's why Scott's great. That's Scott's job, because Scott doesn't do anything else. You are all over the world. You can't check in on the progress of a home construction. Stop teasing this storyline. I don't like it. (laughs) Yeah, I almost don't get it because it's like, this isn't keeping up with the Kardashians. Like, we don't have to manufacture these fake plot lines anymore. And if you are, have it be you trying to teach Kylie how to use a stick shift car. (laughs) Do we have any other Kardashian news? I mean, Kylie, seemingly a week after dropping the first Kai collection, is dropping a second one? It's all the blue puffer stuff. Yeah, it's cute. Sure. It was such an insightful conversation about the second drop of Kai. Well, you know what? We're not on their PR list. We're not getting sent any of this stuff. Maybe we'd have some more insightful comments if we got sent some stuff. You hear that, Kylie? All right, guys. We're truly delirious from talking about all of these movies and pop culture. But we will be back next week with a Sex and the City episode. A much requested episode. Can you guess what it is? Well, they have a roughly one in how many episodes are there of Sex and the City? 84? They have a one in 84 chance of being right. 94. You were so close. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.